Harris Island, South Carolina. Here, everyday Americans become Marines, the toughest fighting men in the world. You will now run, you will walk, get on the yellow footprints right now. I sir! You will do what you're told to do, what you're told to do it, and without question, do you understand? Yes! I admit this all the time in the open. It, I went through Buzz in 1999. I had already had two or three combat tours under my belt by 07. And those two books, handed to me by a peer, were the first two like legitimate pieces of mental agility training I got, other than go harder for longer with more intensity. What's mental flexibility? What's mental agility? Okay, people, people can start to work through these. How do we train them? So why is it that the beast so damn When you're really pressured, you know, way out on the edge of your physical ability, the only thing you have left, the only gear you can go into is a mental one. So Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Steinfort. And today we have two of the most badass people that I know on this planet. And they're both kind of laughing and feeling a little weird right now, but that is a legit, honest statement. And in particular, it's an extra special episode because both of these incredible humans are working with different groups in the military, either have direct experience themselves as an operator or as a mental coach like myself. And so I'll start with uh, ladies first, CC Craft, Cecilia, full name, but everyone just knows her as CC or Cease is the mental performance coach or the head of the mental performance initiative for the Army Green Berets in particular. I met Cece when she was working and still does consult with the Cleveland Indians back in baseball days. Uh, Cece, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Patty. I'm excited to be on. I, I am not as excited as me, but I think you'll get there. Um, and uh, Coleman Ruiz is the other guest. Coleman has a... Uh, an incredible story, uh, backstory, before we even get to what he does nowadays. Coleman, can you tell us a little more about your history uh, as an operator within the armed forces? Yeah. Uh, how long your career was and what you actually did into deployments, et cetera. Yeah, uh, short compared to some people, but really, I know we're talking about toughness and some other things, Patty. I really my life in the military, I always say, started really with wrestling because that combatives background is what seasoned me to this type of environment, you know. And so then 13 years in special operations in the SEAL teams, uh, four combat tours, probably, you know, seven or eight other or seven or eight total type of deployments. But the four that I always think about are the ones that really delivered, you know, the most pressure when mm -hmm. you're obviously in the garden spots around the country and you experience some sort of combat action, some, you know, worse than others. But that took me until the fall of 2011. And then I got out of the Navy in the fall of 2011. Right. And then from there, this is when you moved into working with high level teams in other areas. And that's where we did meet in 2015. I think it was our paths first crossed when we were both guest speakers for the Philadelphia Eagles during their uh, preseason work and at that point you were transferring the knowledge and experience that you had in those high pressure environments to other people who worked in high pressure environments arguably not as high pressure because bullets aren't flying but it's all relative and so from there you were working at that point just as a consultant and now it's crystallized into something more solid do you want to share a little more about the mission critical work that you do yeah all these patty were 
guess like some of our lives, Cece can probably relate to this as well. It's just like accidents, you know? I, as I mentioned, I got out of the Navy in, in the fall of 2011. And because I had the sporting background and the instructor background from being in the teams, both a basic training instructor, you know, in our hell week back in Coronado and then advanced training instructor in, in, in uh, Virginia beach. And I, and I still stayed in touch with people in athletics and through a friend, I was doing some work with like, you know, division one college athletic teams. And I met some professional coaches and, and without a background, even like yours, Patty, or like CC's with some formal education, I was just reflecting on these experiences in these environments and sharing that with athletes. And obviously it, it, it they can relate to it, you know? And so um, at the same time, I was staying very close to our community, the Mission Critical Teams community, through Dr. Preston Klein's research at the time, which is at Wharton. Now we're, we're separate from Wharton. But because that environment is such a collective of people, from astronauts to athletes and everybody in between, special operations, firefighters, that deal in environments where your core decision-making is done in 300 seconds or less, which is Preston's doctoral research. Um, I'm not the doctoral research person, but I, I, because I stayed in the applied side of the business, so to speak, this kept pulling us into all of these environments, athletic or otherwise. So now in, in 2020, I have other parts of my life too, but, but this, you know, this slice of my life has continued to like bring us back in touch, Patty, meaning me and you and folks like CC and, and hundreds of others now with, um, with athletics and the mission critical team community in general. Yeah. And I, I, firstly, I'll say thank you to you. Preston's going to be a, a guest later on in the series. And um, like you say, accidents happen along the way, but these were great accidents because I would uh, hesitate to guess that I wouldn't know half as many people um, that are super relevant to what we do on this show and also just that I've learned so much from. And the first time we met, I was like, this is really cool. I watched you tell a story about kicking doors in and the, the football players were more into that than anything we saw over the whole training camp. But then afterwards we kept in touch and I circled back and I was talking to, uh, I think it was you or maybe Preston, but either way, one of you said we're doing this mission critical team stuff. And so for those listeners who don't know what that actually refers to, I didn't either at the time. I was just like, oh, that's cool. What are you doing? And you described the audience, which you said it's astronauts, uh, heart surgeons, fire department, all of the branches of the military and, and, and you were like, hey, you should come along. And my response was, are you fucking kidding me? Like, all I do is coach athletes. And, and you know, it's kind of, I, I'd love to come, but it doesn't feel right. And then you went ahead and said, no, 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 no. Here's why we think you should come, because this is what a mission critical team does. You spelled out the definition. And by the end of the definition, I'm like, holy shit, you're right. That is kind of what these guys do. Can you share, you do it much better than me, the, the definition of what a mission critical team is. Yeah. So just think about because of CC knows this. And again, Preston knows this better than I do. Any legitimate research, you have to narrow down what you're talking about. Right. So I'll be a little bit, I'll be, as you asked, specific about mission critical teams, four to 12 agents or four to 12 members. There's a reason in the literature that it's not three people that teams are in this case, four to 12 and that work in that solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets, complexity in the environment, when you look at literature, simple, complicated, complex, and chaotic have definitions. So we're talking about complex environments that have emergent characteristics that are non-causal, 
meaning some crazy shit could happen and you couldn't have planned for it. All right. So four to 12 agents or four to 12 members that work in complex environments that experience a thing called an immersion event and think of a black hole, Patty, like there's an event horizon. And if you cross the event horizon, it's worse if you try to reverse than if you complete the process. Okay. So those teams deal with environments that have where you deal with an immersion event where the consequences are catastrophic loss or death. Now, as you mentioned in our conversations year, you know, years ago, many people initially say, well, my job isn't um, a death. And when they, they think catastrophic loss has to be, you know, the car blows up or, the, or you don't land the plane. No, no, no. Catastrophic loss for an athlete can be missing the field goal with zero seconds on the clock in the Super Bowl, right? I don't really, it doesn't matter what sport it is. And so um, the last point to keep in mind is, the, the four to 12 members that experience immersion events that work in complex environments that have a potential for catastrophic loss or death in their core decision, throwing the football, kicking the soccer ball, combat action, landing an airplane on an aircraft carrier, you name it, right? Just go through the list. That your core decision happens at the immersion event in 300 seconds or less, meaning, I mean, it's five minutes, right? And the reason for the 300 seconds or less is because of the physiology and the neurobiology behind mission-critical teams. Essentially, if we were to stop right now, Patty, and just count, we have about 300 seconds of oxygen in our brain to work the physiology of a mission-critical problem. And the, that's why the research is sectioned off that way. So for, for, for a listener, if you have a job that requires a decision in 300 seconds or less, that once you cross an immersion event, it's worse to reverse yourself than to keep going. You're essentially an MCT member. Right. And that's, and that for me was like, uh, an eye opening, like kind of brain explosion event. If you think about the emoji with the brain exploding <laughs> at the top, that's kind of what I would have pictured that day that I look like while you're telling me that, because it, I will sometimes refer when I'm sitting with an athlete or a coach to a, a sweaty palms moment, which is the anticipatory, this shit is about anything could happen right now within reason. And I'm about to step off a threshold and I can't go back. Like the ref has the ball in his hands. He's about to throw it up for the tip off. Tip off is at 8 PM. It's not stopping just because I feel nervous. It's not stopping because I didn't prepare properly. It's not stopping for me to calm down. It's just this, this is going to happen. And it, for me, was the embodiment of that. I had a, an experience coming overseas from a different country, seeing the athletes here have absolute reverence for the military, and it's similar back home, and I couldn't work out why. And then your, de your description gave me a, a little insight into that is because it's very hard for pro athletes to find other people to go through what they do go through both physiologically and psychologically. And there was one great example of they share that experience. See, so I mentioned the sweaty palms moments, my own pretty bad term for that uh, experience for pro athletes, but you worked with the Indians. You were full-time there running that program for how many years? Like here or there a long time, right? Six years. Yeah. Six years. Right. And so over the course of that six years, when you think of a mission critical operator, as Coleman's just described it, like what, what scenario jumps out to you for the Cleveland Indians looking at a, an athlete or maybe even a coach where you're like, yeah, that's really where mission critical comes into it for a major league baseball player. Oh, um, 
I mean, I think there are a lot of moments. If you think about like every reliever stepping on the field, you know, with your best relievers getting put in positions where uh, there are men in scoring position and they are brought in for a brief period of time, maybe one pitch, maybe to get uh, two guys out, um, but they are there to strike people out. They have one mission. They know they're coming in for it. They know there's pressure. Uh, you certainly can't get off the mound once you're on. You are at the center of a stadium with 40,000 fans, and it's time for you to deliver. Um, and I think that's true even, um, you know, for the starter that in the fifth inning all of a sudden gets a bomb hit off him. Uh, and, you know, he's just has given up a two-run home run, and the game's changed momentum. And how is he going to respond? And the ball comes back to his hand, and he's got to respond right there. Clearly not the same as um, – life or death. But I think what gets interesting is when you look at some of the physiology, I mean, you're seeing very similar uh, physiological states and reactions. Um, the hitter that's stepping up in the bottom of the ninth and wants to bring it home for their team. You know, those pressure moments exist. I think you're right. We, um, we had a, a great initiative when I was up with the Indians where we brought uh, special forces, Green Bay families up um, to throw out a first pitch uh, and hang out with our guys a little bit so that they could tell those stories to each other. And um, I think for the baseball players, it was pretty amazing perspective. Um, one of the side notes that I also liked for the baseball players was that you could watch a green beret get nervous to throw out a first pitch. And it kind of brought home that these amazing soldiers that can tell you about stories and places you'd never want to go, they get nervous too. Um, and they would, they would range walk. They would, they would fast move off that mound after throwing off that pitch. They couldn't wait to get out <laughs> from the center of that ballpark. And, you know, it gives you appreciation for, um, we all get stressed. We all get nerves. We all get sweaty palms. Um, yeah. and you know, it's just handling it and moving forward. It's, it's one of the rare occurrences where you'll actually get someone's hero who their hero is the person who's the hero. It's almost a reciprocal hero velocity, whatever the word is there, because the athletes look up to the soldiers and the soldiers are just so happy to be in the locker room with these athletes that they love. It's, it's a, very rare and unique and special thing. You mentioned physiology. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say one of my favorite moments was that the kids of the soldiers very rarely realized that people would look at their father as a hero. And so when the players were saying how much they respected and were thankful for their dad, uh, it was kind of a shocked face on the kid who was getting baseball autographs. But I always loved it. I thought it was the most kind of badass moment of the whole thing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. You both mentioned... Physiology. I just had an experience of physiology as you were describing that cease where I got a little goosebumps, right? Things happen to us that sometimes we're aware of, sometimes we're not, but particularly under these amazing, uh, unique environments, like you said, some of them you don't want to go to. I would not want to be in Fallujah. Some of them you do want to go to. Yankee Stadium sounds pretty cool. But they both produce similar physiological events within us. And so let's start with you, CC, in terms of your work with Major League Baseball players, like how do you firstly bring about awareness? It's probably a little bit easier because they're feeling it, but, mm -hmm. the, but help them gain some sense of control over how to handle that on the biggest stage. I think there's a lot of bad information put out about nerves, about physiology, about what you should feel and about how it should look. Um, and so I think one of the biggest things working with pro athletes was um, normalizing what people would feel and also trying to, um, put out accurate information. So information like butterflies mean you're not ready, or when your mouth goes dry, you should start to panic, or when your hand's shaking, it's because you're a wuss. 
Um, but in fact, all those physiological components are your body reddening itself for a big moment and they're good. They're all good for you. Um, if you don't fight them, if you can accept them, if you understand them. And so I think there's a lot of myths around performance that do, um, athletes injustice or do any performer an injustice. And the other thing I think is, um, people don't tend to talk about them. So, I remember a baseball coach looking at me in shock when I told him that I would call um, pitchers that were going to be brought up to the major leagues. And I would tell them that they might not feel their hands or their feet or their legs during their debut, their major league debut. And he was like, you tell them that? Absolutely. I do because I don't want them to think that they're wrong or messed up or don't have a right to be on that mound when it happens. And it's going to happen to them. They all describe it in retrospect. So if I can describe that, that to a player early on, and if he's up on that mound and he's pitching and he goes, I can't feel my hand. Oh yeah. She told me that was going to happen. No big deal. Keep pitching. Um, great. You know, we're going to perform through all kinds of uncomfortable States. I think there's this myth that you should feel in the zone. There's this myth that it's going to be a great day. There's a myth that you're going to feel ready. Um, we feel all kinds of things when we perform and, and that's, so just creating that acceptance around it and your job in some ways is to, accept where you're currently at and then compete with wherever you're currently at with whatever you currently have. Um, and so I, I think myth busting and then also, um, honest expectation and acceptance. That is a, an interesting and very counterintuitive insight that I kind of tried to lead you in a trap there, but you clearly as a, a veteran avoided it because it's less about, as you're saying there, Part of it is like some control strategies and techniques or like an ability to reroute physiology, but it's not all about control. Some of it is like this is just what happens to your body when you're doing cool shit, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Coleman, how much of your work, you mentioned that you were uh, you're doing the instructor training. How much of that work was in helping people prepare physiologically for stress as opposed to like you're going to be badass athletes, tactical athletes, we're going to, train you within an inch of your life but how, when you started that let's say because i know that there's an interesting evolution in that phase which is where mission critical teams initiative has been so cool to help that evolution when you started as a training instructor how much of it was about just becoming very good athletes versus physiologically handling stress 100 percent to zero percent Two years ago, uh, two years ago, 15 years ago as a basic training instructor, 12 years ago in advanced training, Patty, we did not talk about this hardly at all. So 100% of the training was about your, for lack of a better term, you know, and bear with me, your mental proficiency and mental toughness, the route to it, and maybe the route to it still was 100% physical. Like the more you could grind and the more you could deliver in the event, it was that being able to deliver in that event. And CC knows like that there is some value in just straight up physically taking that pathway is was was almost like the art. It was the signal that you had mental agility or mental right. toughness or mental proficiency. So it was it, it was a war of attrition. For, it, that's like, it. it just like, you either survived or you didn't. And that was that. That's it. And, and the best example, Patty, is like, just go to basic training, right? You come in, at least into our training, it, wrestlers, swimmers, and water polo players are, are the highest percentage of graduates in, in SEAL training. I can give because, you five because, obvious reasons, right? right. You, over time, they built up the comfort, but they weren't, they weren't trained in some mental agility. It was like the sport just like 
you know, they built up that proficiency. So um, since, you know, I would say since probably 2009, 2010 to now, and I'm obviously not, you know, on active duty anymore, our relationship with mental agility and mental fitness has has come a long way to incorporate the things that that Cease was just talking about, which it wasn't even in our curriculum. You said it's gone from zero to yeah. now it's incorporated it, but it's still physical and rightfully yeah. so. At what point did you notice it, either a need for it to change? And then when you actually have tangibly can say that's the point when it started to shift. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take a stab at when it started to shift, but I'll say right around when I was getting out 2011 or 12, where our selection and assessment psychologist, that department started to grow with folks like you and C's, like people who were professionals in mental agility and mental training. It wasn't just a selection and assessment or an off-ramping transition type psychology department, right? Or a checkup from the neck up. So around, just let's call it 2012. I personally got interested, and it's why I, I'm always nerding out on these topics with you guys, is, is because in, in, in 2008, I think, or 2007, I picked up um, John Rady's book, Spark, and which, is, which wasn't even about mental performance, right? It was about the brain really learning and the physiology connection to the brain. Right. And his work was a lot about children and learning well, of at school, course. right? It was, yeah, it, yeah, was, it yeah. was had nothing to do with Navy SEALs on the surface. The opening story is, is about the school in Naprosville, Illinois, you know, and learning and the science and technology scores of the kids because they were running a mile every morning to anaerobic threshold, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, as you know, Patty, chapter by chapter by chapter to talk about um, brain-derived neurotropic factor, the hypothalamic pituitary axis. And, and I, had, I had gotten a small taste of it when I read Dave Grossman's book on combat. And the, I admit this all the time in the open. It, I went through Buzz in 1999. I had already had two or three combat tours under my belt by 07. And Spark and On Combat, those two books, handed to me by a peer were the first two like legitimate pieces of mental agility training I got other than go harder for longer with more intensity. That was my mental training from the time I was a little kid. Now it works, but it works until it doesn't, right? So he's then, then yeah. the shit hits the fan or, or you just run out of energy for it or you have some sort of adrenal burnout and then you're toast and you don't even know what the hell happened to you, you know? Does, it, does the same level of burnout happen? Or I mean, I've worked in baseball almost as long as you cease, but did you notice given that you've worked prior to baseball, you worked as same role but for the military and now you work in a very specialized special operations like pointy end of the spear stuff does the same uh burnout or war of attrition that you saw on the military front exist in baseball i don't i don't think it does quite on the same level so one of the experiences that i've had that's been really interesting is my first six years with the military i was working within a special forces population uh, but the people i was around i was younger and the people i was around frankly were younger as I've come back into the military, uh, a lot of the people that were that I got close to when I was there the first time are now retiring. They're getting out and they're much older in their careers and they're broken and they're exhausted and their lives are all at different spots. And uh, actually, Coleman, I just sent a bunch of them the podcast on residue and the one actually on um, the physiology and psychology of deployments before that, because I wanted them to hear it, to normalize it in the same way I would with an athlete on nerves of, hey, 
you know, you didn't lose your motivation in a way no one else has, or, or you're not struggling with this transition in a way that no one else has. And that's such an important message. I, I think in baseball, um, the lifespan, frankly, is shorter. Um, the average lifespan for pro baseball and there's, there's more of a thought of, we need to keep this person healthy. Um, there might be a little bit more thoughtfulness on, on sadly protecting what is very uh, broadcasted as a multi-million dollar asset. And mm-hmm. so I don't think you see, um, I don't think you ever see the end of the career in the same way. Someone that's jumped out of a plane with heavy weight and, and landed on those knees and those hips looks pretty beat up at the age of almost 50 or 40 something. Um, you know, if you see some of our older coaches walk on the field, you may notice they're pretty beat up too. Um, I used to joke that two of my AAA coaches, I knew amputees that walked better than they did. Their hips were <laughs> awful from the rotations. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I think you do see some of the physiological breakdown, maybe not the psychological breakdown in the same way, but I will say, I mean, I think that was something that, you know, we talked about as a club within the Indians too, is how do we support, support our coaches and their families and all that they're going through because it's a very unique lifestyle to have someone away from home eight months out of the year, to have them be away from home, to have them want to connect with their kids. I mean, there's, there's a a whole component of general health in both of these domains um, that frankly, I think we're just probably in the last few years really Scratching the surface in terms of I should of also say, in my current job, I'm not as cool as you initially described me. I'm, I'm the head of uh, the SOSEP program, which is within SWIC, but not every Green Beret. There are amazing people working all throughout the country for Green Berets. So okay, well, I'll not let you that, have that, that cool. I'll let you have that moment of humility, but I'll also probably edit that out. No, I'm joking. I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> I like accuracy. Um, one of the things you just mentioned there, which was an absolute eye-opener for me coming into baseball in particular as a sport, is like no other in the sense that you're playing pretty much every day. Like you do, there are mandated days off, but when you get on that plane to leave spring training and you go to the first home series or away series, whatever it is, like that's it for six months. And it's about it. I've always said to people who probably – don't know better because I wouldn't say it to you two because you do know better that it's about as close to deployment as you can get that you leave your family for an extended period you do get to visit them so it's definitely not the same but in terms of being an athlete in America that's about as close as you can get in terms of that experience and that to me was something I I underestimated probably the biggest thing for me biggest learning for me was how important sleep is and how important human connection is when I first went on the road with uh the major league baseball team I first worked with for six weeks in a row. And I was just like, at the end of it, I was, I had no energy to talk to a coach who had no energy. And I was like, wow, I got to look after myself better. But now I get why they didn't want to do those things that I asked them to do two weeks ago, because they're experiencing stuff that it's just really hard to comprehend until you do it. And so I'm curious how much for you, Cease, who's been in both camps, how much of that element, the chronic fatigue and the chronic stress, as opposed to that sweaty palms moment, which which is kind of where we started, this is a different type of stress that is just always there. Are there, are there some similarities there or am I way off? No, I think there are similarities. Um, I definitely would defer to Coleman on the deployment experience and MCTI did a really good job on, uh, I thought the podcast on that, um, which I think 
a lot of people could relate to in, in some different fields. You guys even mentioned hospital workers right now, which was, I thought, such mm-hmm. a good one. Um, baseball is a really unique sport in that the grind of every night. And I think it does uh, systematically beat you down. When I first switched from the military to baseball, I remember thinking the schedule is not hard. You guys talk about long days and this is not a long day. Like we, we start at a very civilized hour, you know, you don't call anyone before 11 AM in baseball unless it's spring training. And even if you go till midnight, like that is not a long day compared to military stuff. What does get you and Patty hit the nail on the head is, is over time and over years. I, I, used to feel like I stepped on the escalator at the beginning of spring training and I got like kicked off of it rudely sometime in October or November. And people would ask me all throughout those months how my life was. And I'd say, well, look at the box scores because there was no life. Um, I mean, you just, that was life. And then you started to watch years tick by and kind of think like, there are years going and this is what I'm giving my life to. And, 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 and how do I feel about that? Um, and I think that's true for the athletes and they're trying to live lives and have marriages and have kids. I think that's true for soldiers too, um, without a doubt, but I would defer a lot to Coleman on, on kind of that comparison point. I mean, you've been around pro athletes and you've experienced deployment. Yeah. So Coleman for, for you on that point, like having experienced it as an operator, but then also train people to get ready for that and probably receive them back after deployments and and now doing the work you do with Mission Critical where I know a recent paper was on the residue of post-deployment or post-operation, post-exposure to these environments. Like what is your what has been your learnings over that period of I'm just going to get through it as an operator, which is normally most people are just like head down, bum up, like CC said, and then you start to realise there's a toll. And you start to try and work out ways to manage it. But now you're looking at people who are doing that. What's, what's been the biggest learning for you across that spectrum? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a really, really practical and tactical sense as well, Pat, is like one of the things working for us but also against us is our youth when we're in our deployment peak. Is like, here's the truth. is like you can get away with a hellacious schedule because you can just put out that kind of energy, right? And you have no record. I'll implicate myself. I have no respect and no recognition for the fact that my, that that we're, as I say a lot now, we're still trapped by the laws of physics. Like this engine inside my skin does not have unlimited capacity. When I'm 27 years old, you could have not told me that I would have never heard it. Right. I, because I have evidence every day that I can go at a hundred miles per hour, nonstop, including deployments and training. Remember Patty, when it comes to deployments, at least for us, our type of folks that, you know, Cease works with, and you know, um, training, the training cycle, going on deployment was oftentimes a break in yeah. a way. And, and, and it's like that for athletes is a lot sometimes too. Right. And so the, the analogy I, I talk about now is it, to get to your point about the learnings, I have a laundry list of learnings, but one to bring up in the context of what we're saying now is that I'm not a private pilot or anything, but I'm somebody listening will know the numbers or, or maybe not. We can look it up at some point. Aircraft engines get, they get um, rebuilt and refit a lot more often than car engines, right? The car that you drive, Patty, than I drive, once every, it, your engine may never get rebuilt, right? And that's because it runs at, what, 3,000-ish RPMs? an aircraft engine runs at whatever it runs. It's not 3000 RPMs and those engines need to be rebuilt more often. What we're dealing with, what CESA is dealing with, the folks you're dealing with in professional athletics, we're dealing with aircraft engines. And what I learned was we weren't doing a great job of rebuilding the engine on a regular basis. And 
for the for the audience, remember, I try to always make sure I caveat this with my view of this topic is not like, oh, what was me? Like, we need more rest. No, no, no. The purpose of learning about the system is so that you can run the engine as hot as possible because that's still your job. You know, I think sometimes we make a mistake. Just wanted to at least close my current answer with this point is we make a mistake sometimes in like we get post-career or afterwards. And then it's almost just like, oh no, take it easy. Like you shouldn't go so hard. No, no, go hard. But we need to figure out how to refit the engine properly to go hard when it needs to, you know, and I wasn't doing that. I mean, all my peers, we were just hot on the gas 24, seven, 365. Can I, right. can I jump on that? Um, so I think one of the pieces that started to make sense in my mind is if you see some of the amazing sports cars that some of these baseball players get to drive around, you'll notice that oftentimes the brakes are like bright red on them. You can actually like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll highlight the brakes on the vehicle. Well, why? Because if you're going to drive a sports car that can drive 200 plus miles an hour, it's got to have a damn good brake system. You don't want to drive a car that fast. that doesn't have a good brake system. That would be a terrible idea. But I started to realize with soldiers and I definitely realized with the better people in baseball, I wasn't necessarily there to help them learn how to press the gas. They were really good at pressing the gas they really sucked at their brakes and their first gear. They just had no clue. Like they lost the ability to use different, those first three gears. And so they'd be running in fifth and sixth gear everywhere they went and, and they'd hit a wall or break an ankle or tear a labrum. And it was catastrophic versus just saying, hey, we're going to take a second. We're going to drop gears for a little bit. We're going to pull out of this. We're going to be fine. And you're going to hit fifth and sixth again. It's going to be okay. But it was relearning to walk with someone that had only been running. Um, And that was this really essential skill. And so to Coleman's point, I think it's a great one. The point in the brakes is so that you can corner and drive fast and have fun. It's not to stay in first gear all the time. That's not what we're recommending, but you have to know how to use those other gears to then throw it into sixth. I love that analogy. And I'll extend it one extra bit is particularly with the current circumstances for athletes at least. And I'm assuming for some military is neutral is a pretty important gear as well we need mm-hmm. to get used to being able to sit in neutral and just wait sometimes neutral is used as a break right i was amazed when my mum taught me that while i was driving lessons but being able to sit still and wait and not have that push us into red or just turn the engine off is is sometimes just as important i'm struck by the examples you use there cc and the fact that you've been in both camps obviously super helpful but that particularly in my experiences as a pro athlete from the age of 17 to 26 was very similar. I think to, uh, as you were describing your experience there, Coleman, in the sense of it was a hundred and it was always a hundred and it was a hundred when we were playing and training and drinking and traveling. And this was like how you uh, accrued credit points in the locker room, right? You, you train hard, but you play hard. And this is just like at the age of 22, it didn't matter. Nowadays, it might take me probably a month to get over one of the nights we used to have or a week of training. And that was the definition of toughness, in, particularly in Australian football, but I think just in general in, the, in, pro, in pro sports and in society, like toughness was being hard and being maximum and just going like that. Coleman, you've used the word agility a few times, and that's not a common word used in I guess a young person's understanding, would would 20-year-old you as an operator have talked about mental agility as part of toughness or is that something you've come to learn over the time? It's something I've come to learn over the time. However, Patty, I think 
we can, you know, jump the gap or explain it a little bit better. And I'll use like the obstacle course example, you know, in our training or any training. If, if you're lined up with, let's say you're in your basic training class and you're lined up with a hundred guys, you know, all separated by 90 seconds on the obstacle course. And so you're watching people go in front of you and everything is about how good your time is and are you doing a good job and whatever, right? And you're watching a guy in front of you and he's just ripping through the obstacle course. You're like, that dude's agility and power is incredible. And we don't recognize later that this person's, his or her uh, physical agility, it, there's an equivalent game to be played in mental agility or not even game. There's an, there's an equivalent level of skills to be learned in mental agility because yeah. – as we talk about a lot, with like, at least I do with athletes, is my guess with use basketball analogy. My guess is if LeBron James or Steph Curry wins a championship, and they sit down at the press conference, and the press conference folks ask them, you know, what did your team do to win this championship in such tight circumstances or whatever? They they don't typically say that my um, we we shot the basketball really straight. You know, they, they don't typically say a, a physical thing. And the, and, and, and the reason is, and just like a soldier won't tell you why their combat deployment was successful, was not because we shoot our weapons really straight. That's why it was successful. No, no. They're going to tell you something about the training, the perseverance, the adaptability, the, the, the agility of the team, which is an indicator of their, their, their mental capacity for work and, and that mental agility, Patty. And if someone had just told me, said mental agility back in the day, I wouldn't have listened to it in the same way. But my point is like telling the obstacle course story is we have, we have how much we respect physical agility, but we hesitate to, to respect mental agility in the same way or train for it in the same way. But we all know based on research and where we are in 2020, that when you're really pressured, you know, way out on the edge of your physical ability, the only thing you have left, the only gear you can go into is a mental one. And so if what I share with our teams all the time is if we're going to say that we're elite, then let's be elite in every category we need to be in to perform under pressure. Otherwise, don't say you're elite. Um, my first boss working for the military, um, named Mike Larrere, who's a retired Lieutenant Colonel still is, um, he would do a whiteboard exercise that I loved and he would throw up, um, agility, flexibility, power, strength, endurance. And he would say, okay, physically, how do we define each of these? No issue. How do we train each of these? No issue. Mental, same five. How, oh, how do we define these? And people would work out how to define them. You know, what's mental flexibility? What's mental agility? Okay, people, people can start to work through these. How do we train them? You know, and you think, well, okay, do you want these skills? Yeah, absolutely, we want these skills. Like, we need to be mentally flexible. We need to be agile. Okay, but we're not training them. So why do we think we should have them? And I, I think that's one of those pieces that we miss on the mental side, right? Like we know physical gifts, some of them are, are we're born with or genetic or God-given and some of them we have to work really hard to acquire, but we know to sustain them at a high level, we have to put in work. But like I've joked with a lot of people that teach them the graduate programs for mental performance, like none of us got issued fairy wands or, or fairy dust at the end of our graduate programs to do mental performance. Like I don't have anything that's gonna give it to you off the bat. You're gonna have to work at it 
I think the challenge for our field sometimes is, hey, how do we tangibly create the training for you to work on it um, and make this something you understand that you are building and that you understand you're going to have to work at to build. Shades on.